everybody. Thanks for being here. And welcome to Ocean Solutions, a Noise Lab podcast. I'm Dr. Morgan Reed Raven, a biogeochemist and a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In this podcast, we're talking with inspirational individuals who are working on some of the largest issues of our time at the intersection of climate, ocean conservation, and human well-being. Last episode, we talked with Dr. Isabel Houghton, who told us about some miniaturized ocean sensors that can provide live data by satellite about wave and weather conditions in some of the harshest, most remote parts of the planet. Today, we have the opportunity to shift from data science to community activism and talk with Juan Carlos Villasenor Derbez, also called JC, about his work as a field assistant with Comunidad y Biodiversidad, also called COBE. I'm particularly excited for us to think about Kobe's approach to activism. They're working within national legal structures and continent-scale ecosystems, but they keep the decision-making and the leadership at the local level. This is like one bottom-up end member of an approach to conservation by non-governmental organizations. And dun, 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 next week, we get to talk to a campaigner from an organization that represents very much the other end member, like a top-down, global, member-funded activism that like lobbies the German delegation to the United Nations. And both of these groups share a lot of the same goals, but I can't wait to compare their approaches and really think about how they can complement each other, what they can learn from each other, and what we can learn by contrasting them. More specifically, for today, we get to talk about fishing collectives in Mexico, where we plunge to the shallow ocean floor to collect and count sea cucumbers, abalone, and other squishy and delicious things, which sounds like a pretty fantastic job for anyone who loves being underwater. Let's do it. JC. Hey, how are you doing? I'm really good. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm really excited to learn about your past and continuing work with this really remarkable organization, Comunidad y Biodiversidad, aka COBE. So this is an NGO that works with local fishing cooperatives in Mexico to make their own choices about managing fishing resources sustainably, which addresses this really fundamental connection between conservation and social empowerment. So to get us started, could you tell us how would you define the central issue or issues that motivates your work and Kobe's work more broadly? Yeah, there's two main um, issues at play here. One of them is that because of human development and, and growth in activities, there is a lot of overfishing and threats to conservation, right? So that is the main issue. We have up to an extent some of the solutions of how to go about solving these problems. But the other problem that arises is how to actually implement these solutions. And I think the way that Kobe has addressed this is very special in, in, in its own way, because they've learned that you have to involve the community in order for solutions to take place. So, for example, if there is a very nice coral reef that you would want to protect, the normal pathway to go about it is to implement a marine protected area. It's just like a national park, like Yosemite, but in the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with doing that is that you are, uh, you would be effectively excluding fishers from harvesting the resources within the area. 
And the way it has traditionally been done has been a very top-down approach where some government officials draw some lines on a map and say, boom, that's a marine protected area. Nobody's allowed to go in there. Um, Kobe has sort of flipped that on its head and used fishermen's incentives and their own desire to have healthier resources by themselves. So in this opposite mm -hmm. scenario, there's fishers that say, oh, we want to protect this area because it's good for us to have conservation in this area. We're going to go ahead and do it, even if the government doesn't want to or, you know, doesn't want to get, be involved. Got it. So they're able to identify places where they might benefit from having a marine protected area, not just from conservation, but also because it meets their needs in a broader way. Exactly. And it's not only in terms of conservation, it comes to also in, in terms of fisheries management, for example. Mm -hmm. Why should you manage a fishery? Well, we know that a well-managed fishery is much more profitable because if there's more fish, you can catch more. And if you can catch more, you can sell more, right? So there's a lot of cases where fishers have identified this or, or understood this, uh, and they themselves uh, self-regulate to have a more sustainable fishery. So in contrast with maybe that top-down approach, who is doing this? When you say fishers, who are we talking about? So it's a group of individuals, which we call fishing cooperatives. And a fishing cooperative is simply many fishers that decide to come together and essentially cooperate. And this is a legal way of doing it in, in Mexico and some other countries around the world. And they self-regulate uh, their own fishery. They share profits among themselves. It's essentially a, a company, but for fishing. And under specific cases, fishing cooperatives can be granted a territorial user rights for fishery or TERFs, which is just a parcel of water that they control and, and manage and administer and fish in and have exclusive access rights to these portions of water. So where does Kobe come in? Kobe comes in essentially to fulfill this demand for how do we go about conserving things. Fishers are often portrayed as not caring about the environment and just being there to overexploit everything. But I would argue, and Kobe would argue, and the fishers would argue that that is not the case because they know that without fish, they can't make a living. Fishers want to provide a solution and Kobe can help them provide a solution, right? So they reach out to Kobe and say, well, our catches are declining. What can we do about it? And Kobe can do many things for them. They can help them set up a marine reserve. They can help them get a fishery certified as sustainable so that they can get a better price in the market. They can also help them prepare for the business world in which now we all live in. Um, and they can also position them better in Mexican politics and, and fisheries regulation. Wow. How do they do all of that? Uh, well, by being great. <laughs> um, they <laughs> have one, an, be great. Yeah, they have an amazing team that's, you know, a lot of the, the conservation or fisheries management NGOs are usually comprised of only marine biologists or marine ecologists that are trying to do something. And, and I think Kobe has come up with a very different approach in which they also have anthropologists within their team and economists, um, social scientists, and yes, of course, biologists, because you are talking about natural resources, um, political economists, politi political scientists, uh, and people that are just very good in their realm of politics. And so by having this more diverse team, they can address the needs of uh, a wider range of projects. So the way they've done is they, they are very transparent, right, about what the interventions look like, what are the upsides and what are the downsides, and always being very upfront of, yes, if you implement a marine protected area, you might have increased catches, but it might take time for those benefits to accrue, right? Because 
at the beginning, you are going to have to fish less for a few years, and then you're going to be able to essentially get the fruits of your investments. The main difference is that once you have community buy-in, there is really little to no need for enforcement, because if everybody agrees upon the rules, you don't really have to oversee them. And if everybody understands that those rules are there because it's in everybody's best interest, but the cost to enforce and to manage and to make sure that everything is being followed go down by a lot. And it also increases the likelihood of the project having success. And I think that that has been part of the secret sauce that, that Kobe has come up with. Having community buy-in is the first and the most important thing. Okay, so step um, two, have secret sauce. Got it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. we, we taking notes on this? Good. <laughs> so would you say that that would almost be an example of more of a carrot type policy as opposed to a stick type policy? That's, that's exactly the case. If everybody sees the benefit in it, everybody's going to do it rather than being afraid of the punishment. Exactly. That's really cool. Very cool. So can you give us an example of a time when Kobe got connected to a community and had a significant success? Yeah, I think one of the, the best examples that they have about something like this is the case of Isla Natividad. This is a small remote island in the middle of the uh, Baja California Peninsula in the Pacific side. And has a very long story of harvesting sea cucumber, abalone, sea urchin, and many fish species. And around 2004, they realized and acknowledged that their production was declining. Essentially, their catches were declining. And they had taken some measures by themselves to try to help the stocks rebound by fishing less and by modifying the way they were fishing. Uh, but they were still not quite there yet. And they recognized the need for some additional help. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Kobe uh, was looking for, the, for opportunities to implement community-based marine reserves. So it was just the perfect timing and setting for, for these two groups to talk to each other. Through the process of interacting with one another, the red spiny lobster fishery from the island was also certified by the Marine Stewardship Council as sustainable. And it was actually the first small-scale fishery ever certified in the world under the sustainability label by the Marine Stewardship Council. But at the same time, while they were certified, they implemented the reserves. But in order to make sure that the reserves were working, you need to monitor them and evaluate them. So Kobe trained uh, a lot of their fishers in scientific diving. And to their surprise, fisher divers in there were already great scientific divers. They just didn't have their certification because they could tell apart species just with a different name, not the scientific name. Mm-hmm. but they could do better than your standard marine biologist. I mean, the, the local ecological knowledge that these fishers had has been such a, uh, a key factor in, in driving the success because some of these fishers spent six to eight hours underwater every day. They essentially live there and they know all the fish, all the lobsters, all the invertebrates. They know all the animals that are um, swimming and, and creating by. Yeah. Okay, so we're talking about fishers that are underwater, right? So this might not be what a lot of people are originally picturing when they picture fishers, which might be like on a boat. Uh, exactly. So what kind of fishing are we talking about here? Yeah, so for, for the best part of the year and the best part of their income, they are topside fishers. Uh, they fish for lobster and for finfish. And when you're fishing for lobster, you throw your lobster traps off board, set them over the night, and then pull them back uh, the next day. But when the lobster uh, fishery is closed or, or the season is, is, is closed, they fish for other species like abalone, sea urchins, or sea cucumber. And these are small invertebrates that don't really move a lot. So it's not like you can bait them into a trap. 
So you actually have to go down and pick them up. You can't chase them because they're really not moving, but you pick them up. <laughs> so these fishers actually go down with uh, a long hose that's attached to an air compressor in the surface and to a regulator uh, at the bottom with them. So they constantly breathe compressed air through this hose, and this is called the hookah uh, diving method. And they wear this huge, heavy lead vests to keep them sinking in the bottom. So they're essentially walking around the bottom, collecting the different species that they are, that they are, they are harvesting. Very cool. And so that is something that can be done sustainably. Exactly. It, it can be done sustainably in, in, in terms of that you can pick which organisms you're going to put in your game bag or your, the bag that you send to the surface with your catch. Most of the times you can differentiate between females and, and, and males and you might want to leave the females behind. And you can also select for specific sizes, right? But you are in a system that is connected. And even though you can take care of the populations within your turf, the populations are sometimes spanning other turfs and other waters that might not have the same perfect uh, management that you have. Mm-hmm. And so even if you're doing everything right, if none of your neighbors are doing that right, the entire population can still face declines. And that forces you to do something about it. So in this particular case, then, what did Kobe do to help the folks on Isla Natividad manage that political side? Yeah, so the first thing that they had to do was convince or explain to the community that what were the benefits of a marine reserve. And turns out that was actually really easy because they all understood that if you stop or if you reduce the fishing mortality of some resources, um, the population will have time to rebound. The slight complication was that there wasn't a legal framework in Mexico that would allow for users to self-impose a marine protected area. Yeah. Or to, se- to close a marine protected area without government recognition. Um, so the bigger undertaking was not in the water or not with the fishers, was with the government, the, the fishing commission, convincing them that there was a space or a need for this institution that would allow fishers to self-implement and self-regulate marine protected areas. I imagine that was probably surprising to a lot of people when they first heard it. We have a bunch of fishers and they'd like to not fish this valuable fishing turf. And, and on, on its face, it seems counterintuitive, uh, but if you think about it, marine reserves provide many, many benefits, uh, more than just rebuilding fisheries. You can also think about them as a savings account um, that, that can sort of over time average out uh, to be better off. So for example, if you have a bad fishing year, you might have greater populations within your marine protected area that will help you rebound faster. And then when you have a bad year or a natural disaster or something like that, you haven't been fishing at capacity for so long that that's enough exactly. to put you over the edge to a bad situation. Exactly. You have a little bit of leeway around the, the possible shocks that might come from climate, from overfishing, from just environmental variation. Yeah, fascinating. So has this been received then pretty widely across Mexico? Are there a lot of examples of communities that have done something like this? I would say yes, because as of now, uh, Kobe works with, I believe, 34 or 35 fishing communities along uh, the coast of Mexico. And I've honestly lost track of how many community-based marine reserves have been implemented, um, just because it's been a resource that fishers realized they had the power to implement. And not only Kobe, many other NGOs are now promoting the use of this resource, which is legally recognized and available as an instrument for, for managing fisheries and conservation. 
Are there ongoing projects that are particularly interesting that you're excited about in terms of Kobe going forward? Yeah, I think Kobe has always sort of been pushing the boundaries of what an NGO that focuses on conservation can do. Throughout their ample experience working with these communities, they realized that women played an important, a huge role in these communities, but that they were often sort of put aside because they were not the actual fishers. And even though mm -hmm. some communities, actually the women are the ones that go down and catch things, by and large, they were sort of neglected and not, not part of the picture. Uh, and so what they're doing right now is pushing this, this new agenda that they call gender equity at sea, uh, where they try to highlight the role of any person that is involved in the fishery, but more specifically bring up the voice of women that have been for the longest time providing such a great support. So for example, many of these are the fisheries in, or the cooperatives along the uh, Baja California Peninsula, uh, it might be the men who go out at sea uh, to catch things for you know three four hours a day but then they come back and somebody has to process all that and they have their own processing plants and it's usually women from the community that work in these processing plants that you know essentially add value to the product um, mm -hmm. because once your fish is filleted you can sell it for much more than you would if it's just a fish full of scales and guts right mm -hmm. uh, so the, the value added is actually coming in from the women perspective um, so that is one of the big projects that they're, they're pushing for. And another project that they're, they're working on is analyzing the ways in which technology can play a role in small-scale fisheries management and community-based management. So developing apps, developing frameworks, developing sites, developing essentially social platforms for fisheries to talk to one another. Cool. So how many people are Kobe right now? There are a few offices and the NGO was about 15 to 20 people. Um, I think that number has at least doubled right, right now. Nice. Um, and the, the offices are all around Mexico um, to have different influence in different parts, whether it's in the Gulf of California, the Baja California Peninsula, or the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, or even Mexico City to, to, to go and talk at the Senate, for example. And so on top of everything else, you've also connected these individuals, these fishers, to this larger political process. It seems like all sorts of opportunities get opened up. Yeah, turns out um, they can also get connected academically or scientifically. So for example, two years ago, I was at the Small Scale Fisheries Conference in Thailand, and I had just arrived from the airport. I had missed a flight, and I was like running behind to, to help the committee help set up. And when I was there, I was turning around the corner, and I stumbled upon this person. I was like, I've, I've seen you before. Where have I seen you before? And it took me a while to realize that I wasn't looking at a professor or a faculty member or another PhD student. It was one of the fishers from uh, the Yucatan Peninsula that was there to present sort of like his success uh, story of managing fisheries sustainably in the Mexican Caribbean. Wow. Uh, so I learned that I was going to sh be sharing the stage with this awesome fisherman from, from Mexico. That's so cool. And he made it all the way to Thailand to talk to a bunch of academics and resource managers about this. That's really incredible. Yeah. And I mean, in a sense, in, in, in my place, I was attending the conference, yes, to share my research, but also to learn from the best. And it turns out the best were there, the fishers were there, and they are the ones who know the resources. So that was great. Absolutely. And everyone has the chance then to learn from their knowledge and get that perspective. Exactly. That's very cool. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your involvement with Kobe specifically, right? So what exactly did you do with them and where were you on this project? 
yeah, that was a really, really fun part of my life. I was posted with the La Paz office. So I was down in South Baja by the Gulf of California. That's where our main office was. And our office of three people was in charge of being in touch and communicating and helping fishers run the marine reserves of all the communities in the Baja California Peninsula. And so it was great because we got, or I got to visit a bunch of different places that nobody has access to other than fishers themselves and dive in some of the most pristine and beautiful kelp forests I've ever dove in. Oh, you got to dive a lot. What was, yeah. what was your normal day like at this job? There wasn't a normal day. <laughs> Every day was different. <laughs> um, cool. Sometimes it was days at the office where you spent, you know, months ahead planning the logistics to go to the field for a month and a half to two months. Um, some other times it was just buying a bunch of gear that we needed to bring to the cooperatives. Uh, some other days were spent training or, or transferring knowledge with fishers, showing them how to do fish or underwater video transects or fish transects, how to identify species by their scientific name, uh, which again, they already knew how. We were just giving them a, little, a different nickname, essentially. Mm -hmm. yep. um, but some of the most fun days were the, the time I was actually at sea or on the field where we would do four to six dives a day and just spend more time floating around that actually on land uh, with, with this group of, of scientifically trained fishers. Fantastic. Wait, so are you on tanks or are you doing the hookah thing when you're diving we were, on these? We were all on tanks um, because of the, the, the protocol calls for tanks. So you have a fixed amount of time and a fixed speed at which you can move and, and so that you can roam freely around the kelp forest. Um, mm -hmm. So we're all on, on scuba tanks. Got it. Okay, so what exactly is the field work that you're doing then? What do you do when you go underwater? Yeah, so like I said before, the, the, once you implement these marine protected areas, you need to make sure that they are actually working, right? If they're working, that's great. It's a success and you can report that. If they're not, you need to pivot, adjust, and do something about it to make it work. And the way to know that if they are working or not is to essentially track the amount of species that you see, so species richness, the number of organisms of each individual species. So how many blue fish do you see and how many red fish do you see? Um, I think it's one fish, red fish, <laughs> two fish, blue fish. I got that wrong. Exactly. Well, that's how we fish. start training. And then there's 400 fish and you go nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And so what we do is it's a very standardized uh, protocol where you go underwater and over a fixed transect, you count all the fish that you can see, you write down the, the species, the number, and the size. And we would do that both within the marine protected areas, but also in other places that were at some point considered as worthy of protection, but they didn't end up being protected. And this provided with a control site, something that will capture all the environmental variation, all the, the same exposure as your marine protected area, except for the fact that it's not protected. And so by taking a look at the trend of each site through time or the difference in their trends, you can tell whether the MPA that you've implemented is working or not. Fantastic. So you can actually demonstrate then that by implementing this, we've really increased the number of redfish, which are our favorite fish, but maybe the bluefish aren't responding as well as the redfish. And so maybe we need to think about their food source, which is maybe different things like that. Exactly. And at the same time, remember that the, the government wasn't very keen on, on allowing fishers to self-implement these marine protected areas. And they said, mm -hmm. well, if you're going to do that, you need to show me that they are working, right? And so you can have evidence-based conservation and evidence-based decision-making. 
Well, and it seems like worst case scenario, you have some data exactly. to know what's going on there and how serious a problem might be. Or if you wanted to come back to it in some amount of time and see if it's gotten better or worse, you would at least know. Exactly. And, and so, for example, during 2015, there was this event called the Warm Water Blob, where literally a blob of warm water moved up the coast from Baja and into California. And it had many different effects. But one of the, the most known ones is that it caused massive uh, mortality of many sessile invertebrates. So small critters that don't move around uh, and, and live in the bottom. And these are our sea exactly. cucumbers and abalone and all the things that you harvest. And sea urchin. Yeah. yeah. And also things that you don't harvest, like uh, sea stars or starfish, mm. um, um, sea anemones, and all these things that are essentially fixed to the bottom and can move very little, right? They can't um, outrun the blob. Exactly. Even though the, the blob wasn't running very fast, you, you literally couldn't escape it. While fish could. Fish can swim away and go to a better place. And so during that time, when the fishery catches declined, the government said, oh, if your catches went down, it's because you've, you must have overexploited your system. And fishers actually had the data to say, no, see here, even within my marine reserve that has no fishing, biomass went down. It is because of this totally external factor that caused the mortality. It wasn't us. And so having all this data has helped them prove that their management is effective. I would love to hear a little bit more about your time working with Kobe and your experience diving with them. It sounds like a real mix of people were doing the diving itself, both Kobe employees and also local fishers, right? Um, yeah, usually the, the team would be comprised of eight to 10 divers uh, that we would split into two boats. And, you know, three of those divers would be us coming from the Kobe La Paz office. And the rest of the divers would be fishers from the community that volunteered their time to monitor the resources instead of fishing for a week or two, which is about the, the time that it would take us to cover all the, the sampling for each community. Yeah, well, it's something new to do that you're still using your expertise and helping exactly. your business, but exactly. Um, and it was seen like that. I mean, remember, this is a fishing cooperative and they share profits um, uh, to an extent. And it was seen as, as a service to the community. So it, it wasn't like you were missing on your job uh, or playing around. You were helping in one of the many ways that you could help the, the, the fishing cooperative. Absolutely. So a lot of your time then was doing the sort of coordination and logistics, communicating with these cooperatives, finding good times and materials to do these transects and that yep. kind of work? Yep. And at the same time, you know, after we came back from the field, collecting all the data that we had collected into these underwater writing sheets, we had to put everything into a computer and feed it to our databases so that we could have the time, the time series of all this data. Making sure that all the data were standardized, clean, and held together was also a, a very fun part of my job. Yeah, absolutely. This data management piece seems really important because if you get all of this data, you put in this incredible investment to get it. But what happens next? Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's, it's very interesting because you can collect all the data you want, but if you don't analyze it, it's not really valuable, right? And so when I, when I came to the U.S. as a grad student, as a master's student at the Brent School, I wanted to keep collaborating and working with Kobe. And one of the things we came up with was to develop this standardized way of evaluating marine protected areas. Every community 
sort of looked at different indicators. Even within offices uh, in Kobe, the Caribbean looked at one thing, whereas the Gulf of California looked at another thing. So there was a need for standardization. And we came up with this idea of developing a standardized app in which you could upload all your data and it would run all the calculations automatically for you using this high-end statistical models so that you didn't have to do all that. Um, and year to year, after they come back from the field and gather the data, they plug in the data into the app to see what the latest indicator score is. Has, have we been bumped up into the green color? Or are we down into the yellow color? Uh, it also produces a standardized report that they can turn in to the government agencies that request evidence of the EPA's working. So you said you were in your master's program, and this is after you had been a field assistant for Kobe, and you retained this collaboration with them once you started your master's? Yeah, I, I essentially didn't want to let go uh, because I found that their mission and their way of doing things was just very compatible with how I thought about going in terms of marine conservation. Okay, with our remaining time, I want to talk a little bit more about you um, and your background and how you got into this really fascinating work. Where did you grow up? How did you first get connected to the ocean or excited about ocean-related or conservation-related issues? Um, so I grew up not in the West Coast, as I've been uh, talking about. I grew up in Cancun, uh, which is in the Mexican Caribbean, in the Yucatan Peninsula. And even though I was born in Mexico City, I was raised in Cancun. And ever since I can remember, I've always felt attracted to the ocean. And so for my 11th-year-old birthday, my parents finally caved and got me my scuba diving certification as a birthday present. Oh, nice. Um, and ever since then, I, I've, I've just loved it. And when I was 16, I knew that I wanted to do something marine biology related, um, but I also liked other sciences and I liked math and I liked chemistry and I liked geology. Uh, and I stumbled upon this thing called oceanography. And turns out Mexico has one of the best uh, oceanography schools in the world and one of the oldest ones. And so I decided that for undergrad, I wanted to go to Ensenada, which is in the Baja California Peninsula, and study oceanography for my undergrad. And while I was there, I ended up doing a lot of field work because I already knew how to dive, and I got connected with just the right people. And it so happened that in one of the expeditions that we were looking at whether sea lions and seals fed locally or remotely, I was going to be helping along with a friend, to do the fish surveys. And so people told us, hey, there's a group of fishers that are going to join you. They are scientific divers and they're gonna be helping you guys. And that was one of the best experiences because it made me realize how little I knew in terms of scientific diving and, and just species diversity in general relative to how much they already knew. And during a surface interval when, in one of the dives, one of the fishers that I connected with found out that I was about to graduate and enter the horrible job market. And he said, well, you know, Kobe, the NGO that trained us and that got us here, uh, might actually have an opening. And it seems like you would like that sort of thing. Um, so essentially networking through Fishers is what got me to work with Fishers in this NGO. Nice. So these human connections just keep coming up again and again and again. Yeah. Especially when you don't think, I mean, it's, it, you never think this is going to happen and it's just around the corner and you never know. Yeah. And so it was right after that then that you got to go and do these transects and field work. And how long total did you work for Kobe? I wasn't there for as long as I would have liked um, because I had applied also for grad school while I was applying for jobs. 
And it turned out that I got a very nice fellowship opportunity with the Latin American Fisheries Fellowship Program. And so I was only with Kobe for about six or eight months. And even though I couldn't work with them in their office, I still like their mission and I, I still do. And it sounds like you've stayed connected with them in some capacity ever since. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we have a very many different projects. I've uh, made a, a few more apps um, that look into, for example, calculating the cost of implementing a marine reserve in terms of all the gear that you have to buy and all the training and everything down to the liters of fuel that you need to do a monitoring season. And we have done community surveys trying to look at what the impacts of different shocks, whether they are environmental shocks, political shocks, economic shocks, uh, might, might look like. So we, we still have some, some close collaborations. Okay, so if you were to name one least favorite part of working for an NGO like Kobe, and that can be big and serious or small and trivial, um, what do you think is the least awesome part? The least favorite part was always the last day of fieldwork. The first <laughs> day of fieldwork and the second day of fieldwork, they're all great. It's all super fun. But after a long time, sleeping on top of lobster traps becomes a little bit old. Um, it's sleeping on top of lobster traps? Yeah, so in some of the locations, the very remote locations um, that we would camp in a little island or more like a glorified sandbar, um, your only option was to sleep on the floor with your sleeping bag or at least get a few lobster traps and sleep on the lobster traps. Um, <laughs> that does not sound very comfortable, I have to admit. It's, it's not super comfortable, but it's also not terrible because they are a little bit springy, so you get some some back support. But like I said, when you know it's the last day of field work and you're 24 hours away from a hot shower um, mm. and, and a real bed, that is the only difficult part. The rest of it, I have no, no regrets or no complaints about all. Well, that's a pretty good least favorite part. <laughs> yeah. So what's the best part then? I think it's, it's hard to tell what the best part is, but I would say that the connections overall, whether it's connecting to people that you wouldn't have otherwise connected with, um, or also connecting to these places and these communities that nobody really has access to. There's no tourism development in, in many of these regions, and you have access to these pristine kelp forests uh, and rocky reefs and coral reefs that no dive shop is ever going to take you to, no fishing charter is ever going to take you to. Um, so having the opportunity to connect with these places and with these people, I think, was, was one of the, the greatest parts. That's really cool. And I imagine if you're an outside researcher, trying to parachute into a place like this and study it, it would be incredibly difficult to get the information and the relationships you actually needed to get the right answer, to figure out what would work, to even get the data. That was the right question to ask. Um, exactly. It seems like this structure would change everything, make that a lot more effective. Yeah, because I think that the key part is that it's not Kobe going into the community and asking questions and taking it away. It's Kobe coming to a community because they are invited and then jointly coming up with solutions, data monitoring protocols, and most importantly, leaving behind the data, right? Fishers are, fishers own their data, um, just like a privacy agreement. It's your data, you collected it, it's yours. And having the opportunity to do this sort of makes it a much better transaction than the usual model of scientists coming to a community and asking a bunch of questions and then leaving and leaving nothing behind. Yeah. So if someone is listening to this, and they're thinking, this sounds amazing. I would love to work for a grassroots bottom-up NGO doing community conservation work. What advice would you have for them? I think, I mean, based on how my path turned out, 
networking and making connections and not missing out on any opportunities. Um, whether it is you might be running into a fisher at a conference, that can happen. You might be running into them at the field, that can also happen. Uh, just being open and, and talking to people and reaching out to, to many of these organizations, because more often than not, they, they might be understaffed and willing to take anybody who, who wants to do something. And if, if projects go right, you can always find the, the right funding and, and make it happen. Great. Well, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me this morning. This has been really informative and really fun for me. No, thank you, Morgan, for, for having me and giving me the opportunity to share these experiences and, and talk about the fishers in Mexico. It's, it's been great. Thank you all so much for listening. I want to make sure I give special thanks to Eleanor Durand for her help in pulling this together and to Dust on the Radio for our theme song, One Way Trip to Mars. Next week, we're going to be talking with our counterpart in ocean conservation by NGO, Arlo Hemphill, senior campaigner with Greenpeace USA. Specifically, we'll learn about deep sea mining, a hugely important issue right now in international environmental law that you've probably never heard of. Is this sustainable? Spoiler, no. But the irony is the demand for batteries and green tech is what's creating the demand for deep sea mining in the first place. It's complicated. And we'll dig in next week. See you then.